The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Welcome to Season 2 of Students of Mind, the podcast where we aim to normalize conversations about mental health. Last season, we connected you with experts in the field of mental health to provide an understanding of topics and illnesses that may not have been easily accessible. This season, we will continue our learning journey together by not only speaking to experts, but also by listening to the voices and stories of real people who are living, surviving, and even thriving while also facing challenges with their mental health in their everyday life. This season, we want to hear your stories to get the full truth of what it's like to manage one's mental health and navigate living with mental illness. My name is Jade, and today is the second part of a two-part series where I sit down with parents to talk about parenthood and its effect on and relationship with mental health. Today's discussion features two mothers that have both been featured on the show before, Mia Hemstad and Kathy Barber. In our discussion, we talk about the ways mental health has shown up in their lives during their upbringing, before mamahood, and once being a mom, how change affects self-care and parenting, and more. I hope by listening to the show, you're able to learn something new and gain some encouragement through hearing our experts and listening to the journeys of our guests. However, this show is not a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have about your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on the Students of Mind podcast. Today's guests are Mia Hempstad and Kathy Barber. Mia Hempstad, who was previously on the show, is a trauma-informed self-care coach, speaker, wife, and mama of two. Mia is the founder of No Longer Last, a group coaching experience that focuses on teaching women how to prioritize themselves. She is also the founder of the No Longer Last Journey podcast, where she shares her story, advice, and inspiration, all related to making your health, happiness, and well-being a priority. Our second guest is Kathy Barber who has also previously been on the show and just happens to be my mom. 
She's also a writer, speaker, and mental health advocate. Today, the three of us sit down and talk about the ways that mental health has shown up throughout their lives, how parenting shifted their relationship with their mental health, how periods of change affect both parenting and self-care, and the ways these two mamas take care of themselves through it all. Mom and Mia, thank you so much for being here. Today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Of course. Um, before we get into the topic of today, I just kind of want to let my audience get to know you guys a bit. So, can you tell us a little bit about yourselves and the work that you do? We can start with Mia. Okay, cool. Yeah. Hi, everybody. My name is Mia Hemstad. I'm a mom of two little kids. I'm a trauma-informed self-care coach, and I'm also a podcast host like Jade. I host the No Longer Last Journey podcast, which is all about empowering women to prioritize themselves in a world that wants us to be second all the time. So th- those are a few of the things that I do. All right, great. Uh, mom, if you want to introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. I'm Kathy Barber. I am the mom of two adult children, one named Jade, who is the host of Students of Mind. I'm also the author of The Black Woman's Guide to Breastfeeding and also Lactation Management Strategies for Working with African-American Moms. Um, For the past 20 years, I've been uh, consulting and working for different nonprofits, providing leadership on fundraising, as well as um, marketing and communications. Great. So today we're going to talk about parenting and mental health and how it all relates. So I think to start off the conversation, I kind of want to like go back to the beginning and talk about childhood. And my first question is, What was your relationship and experience with your mental health as you were growing up? I know that a lot of the times we tend to not have conversations about mental health until we're older. So I wonder, like, as you are where you're where you are in life now, looking back, if you're able to identify the ways uh, your mental health challenges showed up as you were growing up. Go ahead and and dive in. Um, I love this question. I am having a lot of epiphanies recently about how my anxiety was present long, like beginning of childhood. I I thought, oh, when I was a kid, I didn't have anxiety. And it's like, no, I did. (laughs) I had really bad anxiety. Um, So I'm just like really starting to make sense of my childhood. And in terms of like, what was my relationship to mental health? Could I talk about it and things like that? I mean, the answer is no, absolutely not. It was never a model to me. Vocabulary around mental health wasn't even a thing. So even if I wanted to talk about it, I had no idea how. So I don't even think I heard the word anxiety until I was like almost in college. Like really? So yeah, that's kind of where I started out, just going through it, but not knowing how to talk about it. That seems like a um, a very common experience, just like not having the language. And when mm-hmm. you don't know what you don't know, it's like you can't you can't mm-hmm. explore it. Uh, Mom, how about you? 
So when I was growing up, it's interesting, Mia, that you brought up anxiety. Um, There was basically only one discussion that I heard growing up, and it was about a family member that suffered from a nervous breakdown, which we now know it was, you know, a severe anxiety attack. So that family member, I don't know, maybe every couple of years would have to go to uh, a mental health ward and you know my family all they would say is that she had a nervous breakdown which didn't give you any um information on what that really meant um so she experienced that probably most of my lifetime Mm. and may have been um, admitted probably in the last two years for about five days um but my family and this relative never talked about even to this day why she was actually um, admitted at these various points, other than she had a nervous Mm. breakdown. Um, So other than that, uh, mental health, mental illness was never discussed. Mm. Um, But, you know, when I reflect on my childhood, I could not name my um, experiences as mental illness Um, But in my 20s, that's when I started to connect. Um, The fact that I was so different from everyone else, um, some things like, you know, severe anxiety about school starting or when I had to be on the bus Mm -hmm. stop, going back and forth to school. I was really paranoid and terrified um, in the way I would do things like um, put doors, I mean, put chairs up against, like, my bedroom door at night when I was growing up because I was scared and anxious that someone would break in and hurt me and hurt the family. Um, So now when I look back on those things, Mm -hmm. I can definitely see um, that those were, that was anxiety and definitely some periods of depression. Mm -hmm. That's, that's really interesting about the family member that even to this day is, you know, having admissions and it's still not really being talked about. Um, it's not. You know, it's funny. We actually have had, had some coven, cousins over, and we got on the topic of mental illness. And, you know, how it often happens with Black hmm. people is that, oh, you need to just pray. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that illness is something from mm-hmm. the devil, and, you know, you need to have more faith in God. And, you know, even talking about those things are considered like something that you can choose to get over or you need to have more faith in God to to manage it, which is completely ludicrous. Right. That's exactly my experience as well. The religious thing. I grew up in a super orthodox, traditional Catholic family. And it's just like if you're struggling with anything mentally or emotionally, it's a spiritual thing. It's a moral failing you're not praying enough. You don't trust God enough. You're not close with him. And uh, I remember when I was in high school, somebody who was in our small church community committed suicide. Um, I mean, then that's actually the terminology I was given, committed suicide. He, you know, died by suicide. And that was the first time it kind of like Mm. mental illness hit the church community in our small, in my small town in Guam, where I was raised. And uh, even that wasn't really discussed. It was like the explanation came out that this person had bipolar disorder. And as far as I understand, you're just like born with that. And there's like nothing you can do. And and that was it. Um, 
and it was quickly kind of buttoned up. But I remember being told my whole life that if you took your life by suicide, that you were going to, you know, not be in God's favor. So it was always tied back to religion and, and whether or not God loved you, (laughs) which is like (laughs) the last person someone with mental illness needs. Uh, But I just appreciate you bringing that up because sometimes I, I, I feel alone in growing up in this like traditional Orthodox religion background. And so it's nice to hear like that, you know, you're all the way across the world from where I grew up. I grew up in a small Island and, and yet religion is affecting us in this way, like no matter what part of the world you're from. So I think that's important to highlight, especially in the church community. Yeah. And even, you know, where we are um, in the world, but also our age mm-hmm. difference. Generation. So yeah, it's, it's still the same mm-hmm. issue. Even, you know, I would have thought things would be different today. I mean, there's things that are better today, but that fundamental belief that any type of mental illness is, you know, you mm-hmm. choose to um, deal with it and you have to have faith in God, um, that that's still, you know, really a hindrance to specifically people mm-hmm. of color to getting the treatment that they need. Um, I'm just going to add one more thing that is is fascinating about my childhood. So I wrote a suicide Mm. letter because I think it was more ideations, but I did write the letter um, and my mom found it. And the first question was, what's wrong with you? Mm. You have a good life. Why are you saying these things? Why would you write this letter? Um, and I didn't even have the words to to share because it was such an instant, mm. you know, something, something's wrong. Other than let's go see someone mm-hmm. to find out what's mm-hmm. wrong or let's talk to your doctor to see, you know, why you've written this. It was only what's wrong with you. You have a mm. good life. The letter was torn up. And there was no other addressing my mental health um, from my family. Oh, that's devastating. Yeah, it was. Thank you for sharing that. I know this isn't my podcast, Jade. I feel like your mom and I are taking over. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm so happy. I'm loving just sitting back and letting you guys talk. That's so meaningful, though. And I just really appreciate you sharing that you even wrote that. I feel like even though in the mental health space, people are talking about depression, they're talking about anxiety, but I feel like when self-harm and suicidal ideation is just so taboo, like still, it's just so hidden And I think it's just so important to be like, no, like thinking about wanting to end your life is something a lot of people do. And I think we need to open up those conversations and not make it so scary. Yeah. And and even when I talk about it within my family now, not so much suicide, but mental illness, me taking medication, seeing a therapist, you know, most of my family members look at me like I have 14 heads. Right. I mean, it's not like, you know, it's not like, oh, good for you. That's, that's your thing. It's almost like, when I say these things, it's it goes silent, it's completely annoyed, and then the conversation that had been going on just picks right back up. I feel the same way with my family. Yeah, uh, I, <laughs> yeah I'm loving you guys talking. This is exactly what I wanted. <laughs> um, but yes, thank you both for sharing um, about your childhoods. I know that that can be tough sometimes, um, but I think it's important to speak about our childhoods with 
this level of wisdom that we now have is mm -hmm. healing in a way and it um and then just talking about it out loud helps us kind of see it uh as it really know. was so now moving on a little bit um to when you guys started getting the mental health challenges that you're experiencing addressed what were the things that you were diagnosed with um and when were they first addressed i can start with that so you know i always knew like i said that i was different and i think in my early 20s was when i could begin to identify mm -hmm. that i needed to get some support but i didn't get a diagnosis until i was pregnant with amir who's my son uh, he's 25. so when um, probably midway through the pregnancy is when I was uh, diagnosed with depression and anxiety. Um, and I think hormonally uh, during the pregnancy and all of those hormonal shifts, that's why um, I think things got worse, which forced me to, you know, speak with my doctor about how I was feeling. Um, at the time, I was not prescribed any medication because I was pregnant, but we know now that there are definitely medications that can be taken um, during pregnancy that's safe. Um, so yeah, in my mid-20s, I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety. And then in my probably early 30s, I was diagnosed with um, bipolar 2 and PTSD. Um, PTSD was diagnosed in therapy because of obviously all the trauma um, that I had experienced as a young child. And then the bipolar too was diagnosed because I started to have just sort of this consistent baseline feeling of depression. But then I would have these brief periods of just hypomania, very um, excited, you know, staying up a couple nights in a row, being extremely productive but then it would last maybe three days and then I would go back to just sort of having this uh, baseline feeling of depression and um, not being happy. So, yeah. Mm. So in my mid-20s uh, initially and then started a consistent therapy in my early 30s. Wow. Um, for me, and again, it's so fascinating to me, like generationally, you know, I didn't start learning about my mental health challenges till my 20s you know, you would think that by the time my childhood came around, like at least there'd be some discussion about it. But no, I was like completely in the dark until I was a senior in college. And my, it was a spine specialist who actually said I had anxiety. She, well, she can't diagnose me because she's a spine specialist, but she was like, I think you have anxiety and this is where you should go. Cause I was experiencing uh, debilitating back pain and like pain in my vertebra, in my neck and certain parts of my back. What was always it was all centralized to my uh, my spinal cord, which we know our central nervous system, a ton of nerves are in there and anxiety connects to that, right? So, it, it, you know, I was paying attention to those signs and I went and got tons of testing done and everything came back negative. And finally, I had a doctor that didn't just say, the test came back negative, you have no problems. She acknowledged that there was a problem and she said, I should probably go, you know, get a therapist. I didn't because I was 
too scared to figure out how much that would cost. I didn't have health insurance at the time. I was paying it for everything out of pocket. Um, but it was the very first time I even heard the term anxiety in relation to me. And that was a big deal. I was like, oh my gosh, what does this mean? What is anxiety? Like, what does it entail? Mm -hmm. And why is it making my back hurt? Why am I having migraines? Yeah. You know, all these physical symptoms that I now know are normal, but just really didn't at the time. Um, and then I was diagnosed with clinical depression when I was pregnant with my second child. And I didn't go on any medication, but I was um, closely monitored by the healthcare team in my second pregnancy. And I'm so grateful for that. And then my daughter was, I think, about three months old when I was officially diagnosed with PTSD and major depressive disorder and, you know, was given an ACEs assessment, which is adverse childhood experiences. It's an assessment to evaluate how much trauma you've been through. And I scored an eight out of 10. And to this day, you know, that diagnosis of PTSD and depression and that ACEs score really helps me to validate myself when I am gaslighting myself and telling myself that I should be as productive mm -hmm. as this person. I should be mm -hmm. further along in my career. I should be doing better and all this stuff. And to remind myself of the facts, which is that I have PTSD and depression. I have an ACEs score of an eight out of 10, and I cannot compare myself <laughs> to other people. And like, if I mm -hmm. had any other disease, mm -hmm. right. If I had diabetes, if I right. had cancer, if I had a physical disability, maybe I didn't have a, a limb or something, I would probably have a little bit more compassion, not saying that we don't all struggle with a little bit of self gaslighting, a little bit of self invalidation, but it's really easy to discount what we go through. And so, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's really free. I know it's scary to anyone listening to this who's scared to go and get evaluated, but it is liberating when you finally know what's going on and it can really inform your treatment plan. Um, so since 2019, when I was formally diagnosed, I've been uh, in and out of therapy, mostly in, <laughs> and I've been uh, on medication, a lot of different kinds of meds, but I'm finally on a medication now after taking an eight month break that is really helping me survive and thrive in a way I haven't in a while. So that's kind of a spectrum of it. So since 2019, really, is when I started to really get care. I like that you brought up um, gaslighting yourself and, you know, being really hard on yourself, but then being able to challenge that with the facts of the disorders that you're living with. Um, I think part of the challenge, one, is society's um, the stigma mm -hmm. about mental illness. If there wasn't a stigma, if it was considered as a biological, you know, biological mm -hmm. issues, just like diabetes, heart disease, et cetera, then you wouldn't have to sort of check mm -hmm. yourself and mm -hmm. remind yourself because it'd just be a normal part of, of how we look at mm -hmm. illness um, because they're illnesses. Mm -hmm. um, so I have to remind myself of those things, mm -hmm. too. Sometimes I get sort of far down mm -hmm. the road in like anxiety mm -hmm. or um, being depressed about something. And I have to then I'll remember, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm functioning in a mm -hmm. different way than most other people. So, you know, evaluating my life with my mm -hmm. peers, it's not really it doesn't really make it doesn't. Sense. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. We have to have realistic expectations with ourselves, And I honestly feel like when I really go into validating myself and, and checking in with the facts of what I'm going through, my problem solving gets so much better. 
It's like you can waste your energy Mm -hmm. comparing yourself to other people, or you can channel that energy into problem solving for you. And problem solving for me has been way more effective when I just go, okay, these are my challenges. These are my struggles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It comes from a place of self-acceptance. Once you accept these things about yourself, then you're able to work Mm -hmm. with yourself instead of work against Mm -hmm. yourself and go, you should be doing this. I feel like the thing that's really pivoted for me in the last five, six months has just been like, I have a new level of acceptance of the challenges I have. I'm not in a rush to make them go away, quote unquote. I'm just like in acceptance of where I'm at. And I've been way kinder to myself. And I almost feel like that's part of the treatment plan. (laughs) It's like, Taking your mental illness seriously, even when the world doesn't. Yeah. It's so, so empowering to do that. Yeah. Yeah, it is. That is beautiful because (laughs) (laughs) I, I can relate to that of just like, I, I definitely go through periods of like taking my mental health seriously. And then I'm like, oh, I felt better. So it's probably not as much of an issue (laughs) anymore. And then a few months mm-hmm. later, I'm in this really horrible place. So I'm really mm-hmm. glad that you mentioned that. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. Um, that acceptance of it um, is hard. I probably in my twenties, my late twenties, and probably up until I was about forty, I would go off and on medications, mm-hmm. thinking just like Jade mentioned, "Oh, I'm fine. I don't need that." Um, and then. At one point, my physician, not even my um, psychiatrist, she was like, uh, bipolar is not something that can be cured. You're going to have to be on this medication for the rest of your life. And when she put it like that, um, that really changed how I um, manage it. So I don't play around with medication anymore. I stop that. Um, I stay on it because it works when I'm off of it my entire life goes into chaos Mm -hmm. so that acceptance is is crucial um i thought it was interesting that both of you got at least one of your diagnoses during pregnancy Mm -hmm. um because my next question is shifting more into parenting um and i'm wondering how your mental health shifted when you became parents um Obviously, some shifts occurred as you were pregnant as well. So can you talk about that? I'll jump in. You know, it shifted because suddenly I was thrown into caring for my babies, which uh, made my own childhood um, and my experiences and the trauma. It made all of that come to a, a huge surface where I couldn't really ignore it anymore. So having to nurture and breastfeed and take care of uh, Amir and Jade, um, my own childhood was was just at the forefront of almost everything I did. Um, so it shifted in that, that I needed to get consistent uh, support. Um, and I started going to therapy and really started caring for, you know, my inner child, mm-hmm. my inner baby, um, which you know, even today, I'm, there's still pieces of it that sort of pop up um, about, you know, the, the child, Kathy. Um, but yeah, it just, it just brought up feelings of um, basically how my 
the, the baby, the young child, even the teenager, um, for me was not addressed mm -hmm. or nurtured um, in the area of my mental health. You know, it, it made me address my, the inner baby, but the, the anxiety also made me sort of like a mama bear times 20. Mm -hmm. Like I sort of became, I was obsessed with them when they were babies. I was constantly afraid that something would happen mm -hmm. to them. Um, I, if I had to travel, it was, it was so borderline paranoia. Most of the time it wasn't even enjoyable. Um, I did things like check their breathing at night, you know, well past them being babies. Um, so, so yeah, it was, it, it brought up, it brought up a lot and it, I had to shift caring for myself so that I could be present and healthy as a mom, um, but also shift that paranoia that I had about them so I wouldn't, you know, hinder, you know, their growth and their, their lives as well. Mm, that's, oh, I can relate. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, becoming a mother really, it brings everything to the surface. And for me, I think part of it was because uh, I stayed home. I didn't go back to work full time. I worked part time from home instead of at my full time corporate job. And when you're sitting at home alone with your thoughts, with the newborn, without your typical distractions, I mean, I used to be a workaholic. That's how I coped with everything. I just worked myself into the ground. Um, and all of a sudden I'm working myself into the ground as a new mom, but it's a different kind of work. It's the kind of work that requires your entire being, you know, when you're at your corporate job, you can just use your brain. But when you're a mother, you have to use your brain, your heart, your soul, your literal boobs, like, mm -hmm. like literally mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. every part of yep. you is being used. And, um, I didn't have the support that I needed. I mean, my husband and I were really doing all of this on our own. We had nobody to call on really. And so it was just, it was a lot. And uh, my anxiety got extremely bad and it was difficult to leave the house. I mean, and I, even with, if I did leave the house, it's like, it would take all the energy for the day done, nothing mm -hmm. left. Mm -hmm. And I felt lonely mm -hmm. and sad. And I'm just like, Oh my God, is this what motherhood is? I want to like this, but I don't. And this is so upsetting mm -hmm. that no one's mm -hmm. told me about this or nobody there's a lot of moms in the world. And how come I'm just now figuring this out? Where is, where is the community around? You know, and like, I have, mm -hmm. I had a lot of friends, but like, I was the first one in my friend group to become a mother. And so I feel like because nobody talks about motherhood, you don't realize how much a new mom needs support until you become a mom yourself. And you're like, oh, wow. Yeah. I should be better, you know, there for my friends. But yeah, I, uh, I don't even remember the whole question, but yes, it changed. It changed my, it changed my life. And it, it really forced me to, you know what, there's this, there's this quote that I heard in a book written by a pediatric neuroscientist who studies like the brains of children. And he said, the reason why becoming a parent can be so triggering for some people is because you enter back into the parent-child relationship. So I didn't think that becoming a mom was going to be triggering, even though I went through a lot of trauma in my childhood. But there's something about re-entering into that relationship, even though you're the adult this time. 
it still opens up all those right. wounds and you're scared that you're going to mess it up. And you see yourself doing the things that you said you would never do. Like, you're like, oh, I'm never going to do that when I'm, you know, and it's not about you being a failure. Or you need not needing to try harder. When you learn about neuroscience and like how your brain works and how neural pathways are formed and forged, especially in early childhood, you realize that you actually don't have a choice. If you witness certain things as a child and your brain goes, when we have this trigger, this is how we respond. Right. It's not something that you can just change because you choose it. You have to practice it. You have to become yeah. aware of it. You need therapy to work through it. So I started reading a lot of books as well about trauma, neuroscience, the brain. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was a rough couple of years <laughs> in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, it is rough. And like you said, those things you say you would never do that your parents did. So I, I was firmly committed to being, you know, a super nurturing, loving, and caring mom, um, which I think I did, but I took it to the extreme when, you know, Amir and Jade were younger and, you know, I didn't think anyone was good enough to watch them. Um, you know, I always wanted to be there to pick them up to, um, you know, just, just constantly be present. But I was on the flip side, so paranoid mm -hmm. that, you know, like I said, I didn't, you know, I didn't feel safe that other people would take care of them the way um, I wanted them to be uh, cared for. And I think, you know, that really impacted their relationship with some family members, um, particularly their grandparents um, who, you know, who love to take care of, you know, their grandchildren and all of that. And I never really got comfortable with that until they were around five or six years old. Um, <laughs> I remember one time um, me and um, Amir and Jay's dad had gone on a trip. Um, this was before Jay was born. Amir was about seven or eight months and we had to go away for two days. And, and uh, he would be staying with uh, both sets of grandparents for one night. And I wrote a five-page letter on how to take care of Wow. I, I'm going to ask one of, one of the grandparents if they still have it. It was, it was definitely an unhealthy... <laughs> I mean, usually you might give a little right. checklist, a couple bullets. Do this, don't that. Feed them at this time. Don't let them do that. But it was five pages. And then... The last page was a list of it like added, you know, it was like a summary of everything in the previous four pages. And then like, a, do this, don't do this. Don't start at first. Like, don't kiss him in the mouth. Um, don't, you know, like be up in his face. Don't give him a pacifier. It, you know, it's all these things that, you know, they saw the letter. My mom was like, she just threw it. Like, I'm not going to deal with that. <laughs> And um, their dad's mom, she she took it, and I think she tried to stick to it, which was totally unfair. There's no way anyone could do the things that I had listed. So, yeah, that shift into that parent-child relationship was pretty. Um, it was pretty intense for me because I wanted Protect to. Them nurture mm -hmm. them and protect yeah. them absolutely protect them i feel that yep.
Yeah, and their grandparents were our, our amazing grandparents. Mm. But I think because I put some space between them and their grandparents and everyone else, that it, it, it I think, impacted probably the level of, of their relationships with them today. So, yes, I, I think that people are going to be able to, I, I'm just glad that you guys are able to speak about those shifts mm -hmm. because I think that there are probably a lot of moms out there who experience the same thing and feel like something's wrong with yes. them. But um, I, and I, like you were mentioning, Mia, like, I know that once you enter into mamahood, at least what I've heard, friendships kind of dwindle yeah. out um, unless you have other other mama friends. Yeah. So um, I'm glad that we have this platform to hopefully make some some moms out there feel less alone. Yeah. Um, I I want to ask you guys about change and the ways in which you have to adjust both your parenting and how you take care of your mental health in periods of change. Mm -hmm. um, I know both of you are have recently gone through um, a change in your life. We can start with Mia. I know that recently you did an international move. So I'm wondering... Um, did you have to, do you have to adjust the ways that you parent and take care of your mental health during these periods of change? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I mean, and transition is like something that happens all the time. I think when you're a mom, it's like, even if I'm not moving internationally, like my kid gets to a new age or he starts school or, you know, we're always going through periods of change. And I think one of the biggest gifts you can give to yourself is not putting your head in the sand and going change is coming and it will affect me now what am I going to do about it uh, because I've not been good at acknowledging that <laughs> I just want to be a strong soldier I don't know where that metaphor came from but just this, I, that's the visual <laughs> I have I'm like I'm just strong and unaffected <laughs> no matter what elements are running by me but that is not how my body works <laughs> so uh, when I yeah. first moved and leading up to the move I was a 
hot mess express, really, really struggling um, with my mental health. I had just finished transcranial magnetic stimulation treatment, which is where they like use a magnet to zap your prefrontal cortex to try to get rid of your depression. That's my, my way of describing it. And it was ineffective. It did not work. And I was not in therapy and I was not on medication. And I was packing up my whole life that I had built in California over the last 10 years to move to a new country. So when we came over here to Portugal, that's where I live now, I, after a month of trying to get the lay of the land, I started looking for a psychiatrist here. I started looking for a therapist. I remember reaching out in like a Facebook group asking for help, like, hey, has anyone recently moved here and found like some mental health care? Like, what was that like for you? Who do you recommend? Crickets. Like every other post in this festive group has like all these mm. comments on how to do this or what are their best neighborhoods or where should you go? And I ask about mental health care and no one has anything to say. And I'm just like, you can't tell me that I'm the only person in this Facebook group with 5,000 members right. who has anxiety. Wow. Like, is this, is this how badly stigmatized? I bet you people, and you know, when you were saying that people look at you like you have 14 heads, that is literally what it's still like. Mm -hmm. And I'm so used to talking yeah. about my mental health out loud now, because I've been doing it for five right. years. But man, when I go out in the real world, <laughs> when I'm not talking on a podcast or a YouTube video, when I go out and I just casually drop, yeah, I almost had a panic attack last Friday. Like <laughs> people are like, oh, yeah. you know, they're just like, they don't know what to do. <laughs> People just don't know how to handle even hearing about mental health <laughs> issues. So anyway, I was able yeah. to really easily find a psychiatrist and a therapist. And I, I, I'm on medication now since April or May. And that's, that's how I've been handling the transition. And I remember talking to my doctor about it and saying like, oh, you know, I'm scared to go back on medication. Like I just had a lot of bad experiences with, with medication last year. But I was just telling her what I was going through. And she was just like, don't hesitate to get medication, even if it's just temporary to help you through this transition. Like I really needed someone outside mm -hmm. of me again. Because I was like, I don't know. I'm not doing right. well. I'm not sleeping well. I don't feel good. And she was like, you're moving countries. <laughs> She's like, you this is a big change. Your body is going to respond to it. You're going to struggle with it. And you don't need to white knuckle your way through it. You don't need to hold on tight right. as you like, you know, try to land somewhere. And hearing those words from a professional was really valuable to me at that time. Because sometimes you get so deep in your anxiety, you can't even cognitively deduce that it's normal to go through yeah. this. And that's where I was. Unfortunately, I was so in it. And unfortunately, like my husband also was feeling anxious, like we both were anxious. And that's the challenge, right? Like, I think we expect our partners to be able to always be able to support us in those ways. And he just couldn't right. because he was dealing with his own stuff. And so I'm you know, glad I opened up to somebody else, a third party outside of my relationship to go, here's what's going on. And she was like, you don't need to suffer through this transition. There is help. Wow. Go get help. And so that empowered me to get on medication and start therapy again. Yeah, that, that's great. Sometimes it's like therapy doesn't necessarily, it's not really like this magical thing, but there are little nuggets that you mm -hmm. get that a question mm -hmm. or a comment from a therapist that really helps to shift your, your thinking. Um, and, you know, when I was, I always used to consider myself like the master of dealing with change because I had so much of it growing up. 
Um, my mom had me as a teenager. Um, I went to five different elementary schools. By the time I was in third grade, um, I had to live really independently, getting myself ready for school, you know, meeting new people at all of these different schools. So, and we moved a lot. So, you know, I always felt like, oh, I can handle change. I did that. But what I realized um, after having the kids is that I wasn't handling change. I was being that in air quotes soldier that you mentioned, just sort of plowing through. Um, so, you know, during my 30s, as the kids were getting into activities and doing different things, um, I realized through therapy that I really was not managing change well. I was mostly stuffing it and not addressing it. Um, so once I was able to, you know, find a good therapist that I connected with, because we know you don't always connect with a therapist. And sometimes when the therapist-client relationship changes, another area of change, you have to find another therapist that'll fit your needs for that uh, period of time. So yeah, just learning um, and learning about change that the way I had been managing it was not healthy or effective and that it's okay to seek help during those periods of change. You both mentioned just how it's okay to really get some extra support during periods of change, and I think that that's really important to mention just for everyone because it can feel like you're supposed to do it alone, um, but you don't have to. Um, and so, Mom, I wanted to ask you a question going further into change. I know that now you have two adult children, um, and I'm wondering how managing your mental health, if it's different now that you have adult children? Wow, that's, that's a deep question. Um, <laughs> so the whole emptiness concept, you know, I'd heard about it, I knew what it was, but I didn't think it would affect me the way it did. So I became an empty nester in 2019. Um, Jade moved to the West Coast. Um, my son graduated college and moved to New York. So suddenly there I was with the empty nest. And I would say for the first year and a half, um, all my anxieties came back. Um, depression was, was massive. Um, because I had to not just deal with my mental health, but deal with that big change of not having to, not being hands-on as a mom anymore. Um, accepting the change in each of them being, you know, 100% independent, which is how I raised them to be. I raised, <laughs> you know, they were raised to to leave the nest and explore the world and try different things. Um, so although I knew those things were good, it was just hard accepting, you know, this new, this new aspect of motherhood that isn't, isn't necessarily hands-on or every day. So that impacted my mental health with um, shifting from <laughs> general anxiety to being anxious with how they're, how they're faring so far away from me. You know, like if something happened to Jade, how could I get out there really quickly to help? Um, if something happened to Amir, how could I get there and help? And I remember, I think it was COVID or it might've been 
during George Floyd, but I created this um, sort of phone tree, um, 800 number, how to get in touch with everyone, emergency list. Jade, I don't know if you remember this, <laughs> but I created this document where if some sort of disaster happened, you know, we can reach each other on, you know, this online platform, or you can call this number to check in and make sure everyone is okay. And that, that's, that's sort of how uh, my anxiety showed up in one way, like being paranoid, there's some sort of disaster, we'll never be connected. So I, I tried to create this little emergency list on how we could, could stay connected. So yeah, things flared up again. Um, and when I became an empty nester, I wasn't in therapy. I was between therapists. Um, so when I found the right one, um, it just made a difference in helping me to process through my feelings with my mental health, but also just the reality of becoming an empty nester. Those, those feelings are valid and things are going to shift for you emotionally and mentally when your children uh, leave the nest. So I'm pretty much good with it, <laughs> you know, but there are some things that, you know, I still, I still worry about like their safety and the things that they do that I have no control over, but it's not at that paranoid level. I can, I can manage how my mental health shows up in that way. So Mia, it's going to happen at some point. <laughs> <laughs> and I would just, just a suggestion to throw out there, you know, sometimes when you're a mom, you sort of, you don't necessarily lose yourself. You just sort of put, or at least for me, I put myself a little stuff that I wanted, like on a mm -hmm. shelf over here. So my focus was primarily always on the kids. So now it's like, what are the things that I'm passionate about now without being attached to being a mom yeah so I'm just suggesting don't don't give up the stuff that yeah. you love try to you know try to weave it into your parenting mm -hmm. um so that when that emptiness stage happens it's not such a hard transition the way I, I thank have. you I appreciate that yeah and I know it seems like a hundred years away. It doesn't. It, it doesn't. Quick. People tell me that all the time. They're like, better watch out. Like, they grow quickly. I'm like, are you kidding me? Every day I'm like, my son lost two teeth in one month. And it's been oh. emotional for me. <laughs> I was telling my therapist about it mm -hmm. and I almost, I like almost started crying. Like, um, and my son used to be very confused and concerned when I would get emotional Anytime he would have a milestone that excited him. And now we have a term, mm -hmm. we call it happy sad. And Aww. it's really been really beautiful because he's like, mom, why are you sad? It's like, well, I'm sad that you're growing up because, you know, you're my baby and you're getting older, but I'm also happy that you're growing up. And so I'm happy and sad and it's normal to feel that way. It's okay. You know, I'm, I'm okay. And so then the other day I asked him, like, what are some things that make you feel happy, sad? And he was like, ice cream. He was like, ice cream just tastes so good. It makes me happy, sad. And I literally can relate, though. Like, I'm a foodie. And when I eat certain foods, I'm like, how did God make this? Like, how does this exist? But also he was like, 
so where we live, there's a lot of seagulls and we have like these big glass doors uh, by each of our bedrooms. And so he, I noticed in the mornings would like open up his dark room, darkening shades. And I'm like, where's Charlie? What is he doing? He's usually out here in the kitchen, like getting food. And I realized every morning he opens the shades to watch the seagulls fly by. And he said that seeing the seagulls Mm. makes him feel happy, sad. And I'm just like, this kid is such a romantic. Like, he's like watching the seagulls at five years old, being like, oh, so beautiful, you know, and just a variety of things. Like, I told him, I'll love you no matter what you do, you know? It's like, even when you do something that I don't want you to do, I'll I'll love you no matter what. And he's like, oh, mom, that makes me happy, sad. So anyway, I could go on, but I don't even know what the question was. What we were talking about. Oh, yeah. How old old is (laughs) my son? He's five, but he talks like he's 20 sometimes. I'm just like, you know, I'm like, I see him growing and I'm trying to just enjoy every moment of it and soak it in. I think it's amazing that you gave him that language of happy, sad. That's so important for him to have that and be tapped into what that means at his age. Um, Because boys are, don't often get that Mm -hmm. mental health support. Um, Even, even Mm -hmm. as adults, you know, we we talk about as moms, like not sharing all the information about mental health Mm -hmm. or how we're feeling, Mm -hmm. but men, you know, it's exponentially less. So, you know, allowing him to feel emotional and giving him this language, I think is going to be a, a critical part of his own mental health. As Thank he you so much. I'm trying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is so great. I love this conversation. Um, you guys both briefly mentioned uh, self-care. And so as we close out this conversation, I want to ask you guys, what are... Like, do you, do you guys have self-care routines or things that you do to stay well mentally and physically on a regular basis as you're juggling parenting and managing your mental health and work and all of the things that come with life? That's a great question. And I'm really good at telling other people how to have (laughs) self-care and how to take care of themselves and I'm always telling you know people be gentle with yourself it's really hard to for me to maintain it I do well for periods of time and then like if something happens I sort of sort of put my self-care you know to the side um but I think I'm I'm doing better than I have probably in my entire life but um I have to do things like now I write what I need to do with a sharpie on my mirror in the bathroom to remind me, okay, you know, sit still and just breathe or, you know, whatever the things are, do some Mm -hmm. yoga or sit outside and just be with nature. So I think um, the most consistent thing I do is either during my lunch break or when I get home, just sit for about 20 minutes and just Mm -hmm. be and just, you know, let the day flow through me, let any thoughts that I have Um, I guess you could call that meditation. Um, But yeah, I just sit and just sort of, you know, let let thoughts flow through, let my body rest from like being tense all day. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, during my lunch break, if I'm in the office, I'll go outside and, you know, just stand out there for a moment. Um, And getting my nails done and a pedicure, that's something... (laughs) 
that's been part of my self-care consistently. That's something that I never I that. <laughs> like give up. Um, so, yeah, so I would just say, you know, taking care of my, my, my fingers and my mm-hmm. toes and just um, just mm-hmm. sitting mm-hmm. with myself quietly. I love that. Um, for me, the thing I do most consistently, like I have a lot of different self-care practices that I do on a regular basis. Like I was writing them down earlier to just prep for this interview. And I was like, this is too much to talk about. But but I I would say like there's a domino effect, right? There's there's some things I like to call cornerstone habits. They're kind of like the foundation. And for me, that's yoga and mindfulness or meditation. So I always do 10 minutes of yoga after breakfast and then five minutes of sitting in silence. I'll just put on a 10 minute yoga YouTube video. And then I and during that, I tried to be really present with my body. Like when I'm doing each pose, like Mm -hmm. where is the tension? Where do I feel tight? How can I breathe even deeper? How can I exhale even longer? You know, I really believe that, you know, you can really make the most of 10 minutes. It doesn't need to be an hour. And in fact, when I used to push myself to be like, no, I need to do 30 minutes of yoga or it doesn't count. It just, that's stressful. Cause I don't have 30 minutes. I'm like, yeah. I'm a mom of yeah. two young kids. Um, so that those 10 minutes every day mm-hmm. is so meaningful. And when my sunroof doesn't have a bunch of uh, seagull poop on it, I usually do my yoga up there because <laughs> the breeze and the sun, the vitamin D first thing in the mm. morning, and also getting that like direct mm-hmm. sunlight in my eyes helps me to wake up. But after I finish that 10 minutes, I set a timer for five minutes and I just breathe and I and usually I, I notice all the, the ways that tension and worries come up and I just kind of allow it to come up and acknowledge that they're there. And I bring that up and I call that meditation. And I bring that up because I think people think meditation is having a blank mind and it's actually not. It's about yeah being with yeah. your emotions because all day long, we're just doing the next thing and the next mm-hmm. thing and the next thing. And then whatever's going on is just not being addressed. And I find that that mindfulness right. is like such a cornerstone. It anchors me and it and it sets off a positive domino effect for the rest of my day. Because for instance, during yoga and meditation, I might realize that there's something that's really bothering me in work. And maybe I need to bump that up in priority in my schedule so that once it's done, I'm not tense. Kind of realizing and rearranging priorities comes from those, those daily 15 minutes of mindfulness every day, right? So it's so simple and mm-hmm. I love it. And I've just been getting better and better at doing that. Um, But yeah, that's what really helps me take care of myself, get my mind right in the morning. Yeah. Spending time in in nature Mm -hmm. is so Mm -hmm. therapeutic. Um, Even if it's just like walking outside of your Mm -hmm. house, right? Like you said, getting some Mm -hmm. sunshine, getting some some vitamin D. Um, And I think I think we as people who are, you know, who have have lived experiences with different types of mental disorders, it's important for us to continue to share um, Mm self-care and self-care practices. And, you know, like it can be something as simple as five minutes of sitting Mm -hmm. with yourself or Mm -hmm. one minute. And, you know, like it can be something as simple as five minutes of sitting with yourself or one minute. Um, Because, you know, I think self-care especially for i'm gonna say women of color because like these are the ones that i that i i know it, it's like it looks like a luxury like you you shouldn't need to have to do any extra self-care um you know it's it's not something that should be addressed because you're a mom you're a grandmother you're 
you know, you're a CEO at work, you're, you know, you, you do all these activities with your kids. And we kind of see it as, you know, just a luxury when you should be prioritizing other things. Right. And prioritizing ourselves can make us show up so much more authentically to, to our children. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Self-care, like you're saying, mom, can it, it sometimes can feel like it has to look like a certain thing. Um, mm-hmm. There's so many like self-care rituals online that mm-hmm. look really great in theory, but like actually implementing them in your life is harder. And so mm-hmm. having you guys say what you do for self-care and just showing that it's very individualized and like right. doesn't always have to look the same, I think will be really helpful for people to hear. And now since we're at the end of the episode, I want to give you guys an opportunity to tell people where they can find you and follow you to see what work you're doing as time goes on. Uh, so we can start <laughs> with Mia. Oh, thanks so much. And thanks for having this conversation. I really appreciate it. So if anyone's interested, I am a trauma-informed self-care coach and I teach classes and I host a group coaching program and host monthly support group calls and they're really healing beautiful community spaces and you can learn more about that at miahemstad.com and you can also find me on youtube if you want to check out my free content i also post my my podcast content there and that's just easy to find to search mia hemstad on youtube um, or search my name on any of their, your places you find your podcast you'll probably find the no longer last journey podcast there as well so those are the places you can find me well you can't find me in any of those places <laughs> because i'm not really on social media at this point um but if anyone's interested in contacting me about a breastfeeding book or topics or um how to you know get funding for your nonprofit, you can always email me at kb at kathyb.com that's k-a-t-h-i.com Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Students of Mind. I want to give another big thank you to Mia and my mom for being returning guests on the show. I thought this was a really cool discussion to have between two moms of different generations. So if you'd like to follow Mia or my mom, their links will be in the description of the episode. As always, if you'd like to stay up to date with the Students of Mind team, our links are in the description of this episode as well. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something new or resonated with something that you heard today, and I will see you all next season. Life is hard, and sometimes you need a little help and guidance. I'm Laura West, host of a Guided Life podcast, and I believe that help is all around us. We just have to ask for it. The universe has a way of guiding us forward with the help of our past loved ones, angels, spirit guides, and ascended masters. On the podcast, I love to explore these ideas with incredible guests and let people know that they are never alone. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you can join me on this journey. 
part of the mindbodyspirit.fm network and wherever you get your podcasts.